This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Thanks for joining us, finding us however you find us on CBS News Streaming. On Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, great radio stations around the country, and of course, our first adopters on podcast platforms everywhere. Thanks for catching up with us this week. We've got a great conversation about someone who is a journalistic hero of mine and of many. And for those of you watching on CBS News streaming, over my shoulder you see the movie poster for All the President's Men. One of the two people portrayed there is our guest, Carl Bernstein. Carl, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So for those watching on CBS News streaming, here's the picture of the book, Carl Bernstein's new book, Chasing History. It will soon be on the New York Times bestseller list, I am reliably told. I've read it. It's a great book. It's a memoir about his early life in journalism, long before Watergate. But, Carl, a couple of things. First of all, are you with me in the general sense that whatever Washington scandal is happening, it never more should be appended with the hyphen and then gate after it. Yes. I know why I think that, but tell me why you think that. Let me let me start first about the book for one second, because it's got a subtitle that I think is essential to to our discussion. And that is a kid in the newsroom, Uh, because, as you've noted, the book really is about my apprenticeship from 1960 to 65 at a great newspaper, the Washington Evening Star, the opposition paper to the Washington Post. In those days, a better paper than the Washington Post in almost every regard. And it's about this kid who gets the best seat in the country when he's 16 years old. And then what happens? And it's never the old man looking back. It's written in the voice of the kid, as as you've known from, from reading it, and the point of view of the kid. So that said, the kid later, 12 years after uh, I, I left this, the star, uh, was Watergate. And Bob Woodward and I were, were 28 and 29 years old uh, when we started reporting on Watergate. And there's a straight line in the book, even though it's almost a prequel to All the President's Men, uh, it, in terms of everything I learned at the star about reporting, and particularly about persistence and multiple sources and 
what Woodward and I have called the best obtainable version of the truth, which really is what reporting is about. All that I learned at the star, and there's a straight line to all the president's men uh, from, from this book. And so you ask about the appending of water of gate to everything. It trivializes what happened in Watergate. What happened in Watergate was we had a criminal president of the United States who attempted to undermine the electoral system, a familiar uh, point uh, today when we now have a former president of the United States who actually undermined the electoral system and continues to seek to undermine the electoral system as part of a presidency infinitely worse in most regards to what the Nixon presidency was, because we now have had and continue to have a seditious ex-president who was a seditious president in the United States. Nixon was not a seditious president of the United States. He did not call for insurrection. Uh, he did not enable insurrection, which really is what sedition is. So the differences between Watergate with the gate and what followed with Trump, among other things, are the Republican Party. Great Republicans, especially Barry Goldwater, the 1964 nominee for president of his party, at the end of Watergate, at the end of the Nixon presidency, they were the ones who pushed Nixon from office. Nixon would have been convicted in the Senate of the United States, mm -hmm. unlike Donald Trump, who has survived two impeachments in which he should have been convicted. So do not trivialize what happened in Watergate because it was more than just undermining the electoral system, Nixon's criminal activities, including the cover-up, including undermining the justice system in this country, including wiretapping reporters, uh, including a war on the anti-war, the anti-Vietnam War movement, again, through illegal means. So it was a criminal presidency. And, and to pretend that what came afterwards, these trivial events comparatively, except for the Trump presidency, is to demean and diminish how awful Nixon's crimes were. There's a long answer, and I'll try to start answering <laughs> a little shorter. That's all right, Carl. Carl, I want you to know this show uh, is on radio stations around the country, New York, Minneapolis, Chico, California, Union, Tennessee. I have liberal Democrats in this audience. I have Trump-supporting Republicans in this audience. And the Trump-supporting Republicans will probably find a lot to fault with your answer that sure. you just gave about uh, the president calling for insurrection. They would say he never used that word. And they would say just because a few people ran amok on the Capitol doesn't mean the president was trying to overthrow the government. Those are their words, probably, not mine. But I want you to answer those Trump-supporting Republicans out there who still, for looking at the world that you've just described, disagreeing with you on some of the particulars, still support the former president or are inclined to. Do you have anything to say to them? Yeah, first of all, I can understand people who support the former president. Um, I think, though, there's a need to look at the, let's go back to the idea of the best obtainable version of the truth, which is not just simple disparate facts strung together, 
It involves context. It involves numerous sources of information. It hopefully does not involve absolutely apparent and demonstrative lies, which I think they're unquestionably. And even if you talk to Republicans on the Hill in private, they will tell you that Donald Trump is and has been a serial liar through his presidency. Um, and I think that's a kind of undeniable aspect of Donald Trump, uh, including the so-called big lie about what happened in the election. A contextual, factual examination, such as the secretaries of state did throughout the country, shows that it is a big lie about the so-called fraud uh, in, in the election in, in which Trump continues to say he was denied the presidency through fraud. So there's that aspect of it. And, and also, the idea that, you, that Trump did not use the word insurrection does not mean that his actions didn't bring about much of what happened at the Capitol and also attempting to stage a coup to stay in office. How do we know that? And I'll address again the former president's supporters. We know that from so far, even in the truncated uh, investigation of the House committee looking at January 6th, we already know a certain set of facts, uh, among others from Vice President Pence's staff members who are cooperating mm -hmm. with that committee. And we have the extraordinary situation in which the Republicans in the House have decided not to cooperate with this investigation, have gone along with a cover-up that Trump and those around him have engineered, rather than participate in this investigation, which has produced a huge amount of information, will continue to, and, and that information unmistakably makes it clear the attempt at a coup and at the same time, a, an attempt at real seditious conduct. That is the voice of Carl Bernstein. His book is Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. Back for segment two. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what may be coming to television screens near you. Public hearings from the January 6th committee and what that might mean to our common understanding of what happened post-election 2020. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout coming up in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Major Garrett, welcome back to The Takeout. Our guest, Carl Bernstein. Those of you watching on CBS News streaming, you can see the movie poster over my shoulder, All the President's Men. That's not a put-up. It's in my office all the time. Quick story, why? I have the movie posters for four movies from 1976, all nominated for Best Picture. Network, All the President's Men, over here you see in the corner, Taxi Driver, and down here is Bound for Glory. None of them won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Rocky did. And I consider that one of the great Academy Awards crimes. Rocky's a fine movie, wonderful movie, but it's not as good as any of these other four, especially not this one, this one. Anyway, that's a digression, but I get to do that because I'm the host. Uh, Carl, you remember, obviously, you were central to the coverage of Watergate. You were, you and Bob Woodward were by yourselves for a long time. It took a great amount of time for the rest of Washington to catch on to the gravity of Watergate. But once it did, and there were televised public hearings, things began to move in the country. Do you anticipate a similar national reaction when, as we have told they will be, sometime this spring, the January 6th committee has public hearings? Uh, One of the great things about being a reporter is that uh, I don't have a crystal ball. And so so I don't really go there. That that really what I'm interested in is, is, is as much disclosure as possible through great reporting, which incidentally, I think that the reporting on the Trump presidency by the greatest numbers of news organizations cover, covering the White House is probably the best coverage of a presidency that we have seen in my lifetime. Because most of what we really know about what happened in the Trump presidency, we know from the press. We don't know it from the Trump, pres- from the, uh, Trump administration, which has tried to hide much of what Donald Trump did. We know it really from from the press. And now we're learning infinitely more through a congressional investigation. And let's take a look at what happened in Watergate. There was, after our reporting early on in Watergate, there was a unanimous vote of the Senate of the United States to create the Watergate Committee, the Senate Watergate Committee. Compare that to the conduct of the Republicans today who are unwilling to investigate what happened on January 6th and the deeper questions of what Trump did to stay in office in this coup, that attempted coup that, that I have referred to. But I, I want to go back to your uh, talking about the four movies for a minute uh, and to talk a little bit about what this what Chasing History, a Kid in a Newsroom is, because it goes both to the posters behind you and, and to Uh, what we're talking about, about the two presidencies, that this book is really about this kid at age 16 in high school in suburban Maryland, outside of Washington. I'm a second generation native of Washington, D.C. My mother's from Washington, who gets the best seat in the country at age 16. And at the time that I was able, lucky enough to get this job as a copy boy at at the Washington Star. I had one foot in the pool hall, one foot in the juvenile court in Montgomery County, Maryland, and a little bit of one foot in the classroom, not much of one foot in the classroom. But 
indicative of that is, is, is that I went to this high school, uh, Montgomery Blair High School, that I barely got out of. Um, and yet, I took a journalism course there in the 10th grade. And, and I knew enough from that course that, that it made me able, I think, to talk my way in to some extent to getting this job. We can talk about how that happened. But interestingly enough, at Montgomery Blair High School, one of my classmates uh, <clears throat> was Stallone. Uh, <laughs> he had transferred to Montgomery Blair from, from parochial schools because he was just as bad a student as I was. And I think he, I, I'm not sure if he had gotten bounced out of one of the parochial schools or came over voluntarily. I, I can't remember. I see him every once in a while. Uh, Goldie Hahn went to our high school. Connie Chung, Ben Stein was my next door neighbor. Um, but the milieu of the time, both in my native city of Washington and the suburbs where I moved when I uh, was 11 years old, and that time in America are very much a part of this book mm -hmm. because I grew up in Jim Crow, Washington yep. and Jim Crow, Maryland, even as late as night. You know, I went to segregated public schools in the nation's capital. Yeah. Barely anybody in this country today would tell you we had segregated yep. public schools in the capital of the United States. Yep. Yes. My mother went to the elite white high school in Washington, D.C., that in 1948, to comply with the idea of separate but equal, the doctrine that the Brown decision did away with to finally desegregate schools in the states. My mother's school in 1948 was transferred to the Negro division, as it was called, of the D.C. school system. So. And my five years at the Star and my high school years as well were dominated by the pall cast over our lives by the Civil War. My five years bracket at the Star, the Civil War, 100 years later, absolutely identically to those, to those years 100 years later. So much of this book is about Jim Crow, Washington, and in the Maryland suburbs. And in fact, it's about civil rights in the fact, in the fact that I covered civil rights. But you have to look at the time that we were growing up in in this high school. Mm -hmm. The ice cream parlor in Silver Spring, Maryland, where Stallone, myself, Ben Stein, Goldie Hawn went to, was segregated. There were pickets of that ice cream parlor at their other branch in Bethesda, Maryland, right near the Naval Hospital where President Trump went and where mm -hmm. John Kennedy's body was taken after the assassination. To give you an idea, I covered the assassination. Yep. I covered him coming to my high school in one of the early chapters of the book. I was 16 years old and the state editor of the Evening Star lived around the corner from me and would drive me to work. And the day before Kennedy was to come to my high school in October of 1960, just weeks before the election, he was running against Richard Nixon for president of the United States. And the state editor of the Star said, 
you know, we have our top political reporter coming to your high school to cover Kennedy's speech there, but you know the place, you know the grounds. So why don't you cover the crowd and you help our senior political reporter? Mind you, I've been at the paper for two months at this point. And this gets back to this kid who has the best seat in the country. And so I was able to cover that event and attend Kennedy's press conferences, most of them through his presidency, and to cover the assassination. And the assassination, by that time, I was what was called a dictationist at the Evening Star, wearing a headset, something like you have on, uh, except just it had a mouthpiece as well. Sure. And taking dictation from reporters in the field. And on the day of the assassination. So, Carl, I want, I want to stop you right there because we're coming up on a break and I don't want to truncate this about sure. what, what you're about to say, because it is so dramatic. And I know to this day it still it still rocks you emotionally. So I don't want to have to jump sure. in in mid story and say, oh, we got to go to a break. So I'm going to manufacture a little bit of conversation here now just to set this up again. Carl Bernstein is a very young person in a moment of national peril and anxiety about what has actually happened. The country has heard fleeting reports on radio, principally a little bit on television, that something terrible has happened in Dallas, Texas, involving the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. On the other side of this break, I'm going to hand, obviously, the microphone over to Carl to recount that in his own personal way, which is also in his book, Carl Bernstein, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout in just one second. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Carl Bernstein is our special guest, Chasing History, a kid in the newsroom, is his book from page 231. It reads as follows. I was used to taking dictation from David Broder, and he was always pretty much unflappable and polite and precise in his words. As he was now, though, he said to me, ready? And as if I were taking, as if he were taking a deep breath, then started dictating without a pause. Two priests announced outside Dallas Parkland Memorial Hospital at 1.32 p.m. today, Central Standard Time, comma, quote, the president is dead, period, end quote, paragraph. Carl? Well, what happened that day, I was still a student at the University of Maryland. I had only been thrown out of the place once before I, I finally left, and my academic record is reproduced in the book. There's a picture of my transcripts of all Fs getting thrown out of the university for having too many parking tickets on the faculty lot because it was closer to uh, getting out of the place in a hurry, et cetera, et cetera. But on that day, I came out of a classroom and there were students gathered around a radio and I heard Walter Cronkite's voice say, there's been confusion, but no panic. Uh, and a mention of a hospital 
And I just thought, oh, there's been some explosion in a hospital or something somewhere. And then I heard uh, the, the president appeared to be shot in the head. And at that point, I ran for the car uh, in this car parking lot where it shouldn't be and uh, raced to the Star Building in about 10 minutes, which usually took about half an hour going through red lights. And as I got to the office, um, a reporter was coming out, running out of the office with her notebook open. And she saw me and said, he's dead. I said, how do you know he's dead? I've been listening to Walter Cronkite. She said, well, Jerry O'Leary, who was a great rewrite man at the Washington Star, his brother works at the CIA and he's got it from his brother that he's dead. So I ran up to the newsroom and the national editor called out called to me because I could type 90 words a minute, which is how I got hired at the star because yeah. I took typing back to the poster behind you of uh, Rocky. I took typing with the girls in 10th grade at Montgomery Blair High School rather than take any more shop classes. Right. I was sick of shop by then. And so I could type 90 words a minute and the national editor hollered at me, Bernstein, take Broder from Dallas. And I did as you read there. But immediately after, and my hands were shaking so bad as I took his dictation that I misspelled hospital and put an O in it to spell hospital. And immediately after that, the city editor, who is really the great character in this mm -hmm. book, yep. he's my mentor, Sid Epstein. Yep. I've been blessed to have probably the greatest two editors you could have, Sid Epstein at the Washington Star, Ben Bradley, our editor during Watergate at the Washington Post, these two great editors. And on this occasion, the minute I had finished taking Broder's dictation from Dallas, Sid Epstein called to me and said, go up to the Capitol and see if you can find Speaker McCormick. Well, John McCormick was the Speaker of the House. Lyndon Johnson at that moment was being sworn in as President of the United States on Air Force One. And the next in line to be President would have been John McCormick. And we didn't know if this was a plot right. by a foreign nation. We had no idea what was happening. So McCormick was a figure of huge importance. I ran up to the Capitol, which was a few blocks from the Star Building. And McCormick at first had been reported by people up there when I got there. They told me he had hidden under his desk uh, when the reports of the assassination attempt came into the Capitol. Turned out that was not true, as others told me. And I found him down in an office surrounded by a phalanx of Capitol policemen just off the floor of the house. And there was no way to get to him. But I called into the desk at the Star and told them that's where McCormick was. And Sid Epstein then said, go to White House, go to Lafayette Square, where crowds were gathering across from the White House. Watch the crowds. Another reporter, a couple more reporters were being sent to the White House as well. And so for the next 12 hours until Kennedy's body came back uh, and I, you know, it went right by me and I could see through the rear window of the gray hearse, uh, the casket with a flag over it. Uh, and I proceeded through that weekend to cover the assassination of the president of the United States. For those, Carl, who don't and will never have an understanding of a reporter's obligation in moments of national trauma like that, 
Did you have any time, even a split second, for your own personal emotions? Through the weekend, yes. There, there were. I had a girlfriend uh, at, at the time at, at the Star, and that story also is, is a little part of the book. And because of its unusual nature, we, we went off to get married one, one night uh, to go to Elkton, Maryland, which was like Las Vegas. You could get married at, at, at any time. Uh, however, the place was closed up for the night, so we thought better of it the next morning and, and went back. But it, it, so, so there is this idea of everything that's going on in my life at the time that, that I'm at the star. But we went back to her place um, the, after the next day when Kennedy's body had been taken to the rotunda of the Capitol. And, and I had covered that as well. And at that point, both of us became emotional in realizing what, what had happened. And, you know, it, it, yes, and the Kennedy presidency had all kinds of faults. And, and, and even I, at that point, was aware of some of them. For instance, it had taken until a few weeks before the assassination for Kennedy to finally introduce civil rights legislation that later became the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and passed partly because of his right. assassination. But he was very slow to introduce it. Churches were being bombed in the South, black churches. People were being murdered uh, in Mississippi. And we can talk maybe in another segment here about my... Oh, we will. Again, I covered part of that. Yes. And, and it's where I came to understand that the best obtainable version of the truth is not neutral. And, I want to, I, I want to, I want to, I, I do want to talk about that. Uh, matter of fact, let's just go right to that because the, the, the key person is Rita Schwerner. That's right. Tell the audience who may not know who she is and what you observed in this great moment of pain for her in the country. Well, in that summer, there were hundreds of young white Americans who had gone to Mississippi to help register voters, black voters, because black voters in the South barely existed because they were prevented from voting by things such as a tax uh, at the polls that they had to pay, by people who kept them from voting, literally intimidated them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there had been introduced, finally, the Voting Rights Act, became the Voting Rights Act of 1965 when it was passed. And incidentally, we should say for one moment, that Voting Rights Act two weeks ago in the Senate of the United States was, there was a vote to extend it again in practical purposes. It was obliterated and buried by today's Republican Party when in fact it passed in 1965 to extend the vote to blacks who were being denied the right to vote because of Republican support and Republican leadership in the Senate in the United States. What a difference. And so in this attempt to register black voters in the South and in Mississippi, there were church burnings, there were murders, and three men named Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner had disappeared in Meridian, Mississippi. And there was a search underway for them. And Rita Schwerner, 
was the wife of one of them. She was 21 years old, just a little older than I was at the time. And she came to Washington to meet with President Johnson and urge that he make the search broader and commit more people because at the time there were only 300 people or so from a nearby naval base looking for these three missing men who were feared dead, including her husband. And so I was assigned to meet her at the airport and spend the day with her as she went eventually to the White House to see Lyndon Johnson. Carl, I'm going to stop you there. We'll continue that conversation on the other side of this break, segment four of our conversation with Carl Bernstein, his book, Chasing History, a kid of the newsroom by Major Garrett, segment four, The Takeout, in just one second. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to our conversation with legendary journalist Carl Bernstein. His book, Chasing History, a kid of the newsroom. Continue the conversation about covering Rita Schwerner and that moment. Then I want to get to you about something you wrote in the book about coverage of civil rights then and very shortly thereafter. So continue with the story, Carl. I stuck with her through the day uh, and and she went to see Lyndon Johnson, who um, was not a satisfactory meeting. He would not commit to committee uh, to more people uh, joining the search. And a few days later, uh, her husband and the two other missing civil rights workers were found buried under a levee in, in Mississippi. They'd been shot to death in the head. Uh, and, it, and I say in the book, because of covering not just what was happening in Mississippi. And, and let me go back to something that very early, a few years earlier, when I was still 16, I had gone to a civic association meeting in Washington, D.C., a neighborhood with a black civic association. If you can imagine right. in Washington in 1960, the so-called civic associations in the neighborhoods were black and the citizens associations were white even in integrated neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And at that meeting, I met Stokely Carmichael, who was then a student at Howard University, who started to lead the Freedom Rides down to Mississippi. Uh, then Dr. King's assistant in Washington, who was Reverend Walter Fauntroy, and a man named Julius Hobson, who was a great civil rights leader in Washington. And Hobson told me something that day that stuck with me all through covering civil rights, especially in Maryland. And and that was, Maryland, he said, is not a border state. It was part of the South. And that the Eastern shore of Maryland was really Mississippi. And some of the same things that were happening in Mississippi were happening on the Eastern shore of Maryland. To give you an idea of, of what I was covering and what was going on in the country at that, at that time. And, on the occasion of 
covering civil rights, particularly around the time of Rita Schwerner's husband being murdered and buried under the levee. The great reporters in civil rights actually were from the South. They were from Southern newspapers. They were Southerners who had gone to the New York Times, who had gone to the Washington Star. And I watched how these men and women, there were a couple of women, covered what was going on. And I realized then, and somebody said to me, a great reporter named Haynes Johnson, who uh, I was a reporter at both the Post and the Star when I was at both papers. He said to me, you know, the truth is not neutral. And, and, it, and I looked at what he had said there and I thought, absolutely, there is nothing neutral about Rita Schwerner's husband being shot to death and buried under a levee in Mississippi. And you look at the facts, there's no neutrality here. There's no neutrality in reporting about church burnings, about lynchings, any more than there's neutrality about those pickets at the at the ice cream parlor that Stallone and myself and Ben Stein and Goldie Hahn and all the rest of us in our high school went to. There's no neutrality there. And the best example, and so that lesson came with me from the star to Watergate. Mm-hmm. When we learned Watergate, there was no neutrality. For the benefit of the audience, Carl, Carl, I want to read exactly what you write on pages 269 and 270 about that period of time, the civil rights era. The old, this is quoting from the book directly, the old 50-50, down the middle, half on one side, half on the other approach, was giving way to real reporting that was closer to the truth. Because for all the right reasons, the truth as you quoted Haynes John saying, Haynes Johnson saying was not neutral. Some might read that and say, wait a minute, I thought journalism was supposed to be objective and neutral and just describe both sides and let people decide for themselves. Tell, tell those who might think that about what journalism is at its best, why they're either wrong or sometimes can be wrong. Well, first of all, the last part of what you said is absolutely right. You do have to describe both sides. There's no question about it. Um, But the concept, you use the word objectivity, Mm -hmm. which I think is a concept that we've been burdened by in in journalism and reporting for far too long. Look, reporting, doing the news is the most subjective of acts. What's the most important thing a reporter or an editor does to start? decide what is news. That's really the the essential starting point. After the reporting has been done, you have to do the reporting. And what this book is about is the kind of reporting you see later in All the President's Men, knocking on doors, having multiple sources to be sure you're right. There's two source rule that Woodward and I had. You have to have the information from at least two sources before we put it in the paper. We did that at the Star. You had to have multiple sources. You had to visit people and make two or three or four sources on your story. You didn't just go see them in their offices. You went to their homes at night where there wouldn't be under pressure, just as we did uh, in covering Watergate. Even if that meant getting doors slammed in your face occasionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go back to this idea of the best obtainable version of the truth and so-called objectivity. 
deciding what is news, once you have a contextual full, as full as you can make a picture of what the story is, is the most subjective of acts. It's not objective. We have a responsibility to be fair, to be judicious, as you've put it, to look at both sides, but 50-50 down the middle on, on those murders in Mississippi? I don't think so. But let me give you the most practical example that hopefully readers and viewers of the news can understand. Let's say you're down there on M Street right now in Washington, yep. and there's a bank on M Street, don't know where it is, and let's say somebody comes in with a gun, robs the bank, says to the teller, give me all the money you got behind, behind there with you, put it in his bag, there's a videotape recording him, he runs out, gets in a car, escapes to Hagerstown, Maryland, 40, 50, 60 miles away. And a few weeks later, the cops and the feds find him and uh, arrest him. And he says, I've been here the whole time in Hagerstown, Maryland. Like, listen, talk to my sister, talk to the people next door. They'll tell you I've been here the whole time. Just as those civil rights workers were killed and people around him who did the killing had alibis, I've got an alibi. My lawyer says I have an alibi. And I'm reporting this story, of, but I've got the videotape. I've got the videotape of this guy and his voice with audio as well saying, give me the money, put it in the bag. Am I going to give 90% or 50% rather down the middle to his alibi? I think people of every political persuasion would say, no, I'm going to give maybe 10% to the alibi and maybe 90% to what's on the tape. So I think that illustration goes to the heart of what it is about reporting. Look at Watergate. Did we give attention to the White House saying this is a third-rate burglary right. and the President of the United States was not involved? Of course we covered right. that. And right. of course we eventually made it given that 15% of the story. But against what we were finding out, that right. there had been a massive campaign of political espionage and sabotage directed by the president of the United States. Were we going to give 50% of that story to one side on the denials? Right. Not when it, not when it doesn't check lose? out. That's right. When it doesn't check out, the ratios change. And that's the essence of what you're saying. When it yes. doesn't check out, the ratios change and must change for the benefit of the truth. It's that's not the voice. neutral. Right. It's not that's the neutral. Voice of Carl Bernstein. For our radio audience, we must say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming and on our podcast platform, stay with us for the ever-popular Takeout Outtake Especial with Carl Bernstein. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your outtake 
Takeout, outtake, special. I'm Major Garrett. I'll get the name right. It's only been five years. Carl Bernstein is our special guest. His book, Chasing History, a kid in the newsroom. Carl, so your story is, I think it's fair to say, unique. You have, as you said, some minor league problems with juvenile authorities. You're not really great in high school. You did learn to type, and you find yourself as a copy boy in this great American newsroom. Could that happen today? Very unlikely. I was hired. I was 16 years old. Even then, I was the youngest copy boy by (laughs) four or five years. And also, I got made a reporter at the Washington Star when I was 19. And I was out of college. I was failing in college. And I became, uh, even though it was only the summers that they made me a reporter, Could a kid of 19 be a reporter in a major newspaper in America today without a college degree? Even at the Star and the Washington Post at that time, both papers had recruitment programs uh, for reporters at Ivy League colleges pretty much exclusively. I was the only reporter hired at either paper uh, for a few years without a college degree. And when I went to the Washington Post to be interviewed, by the city editor there, and knowing that the odds were against my getting hired at the Post. But by then, I wanted to work for Ben Bradley at the Washington Post. The star was starting to be eclipsed by the Post. And also, the star insisted that I finish college if I was going to continue to be a reporter. (laughs) It was not going to happen. And so I went for this interview with the city editor. And he said to me, "Well, well, how can you be, you know, you don't have a college degree. How is it that that you think you can work over here and be hired and do the same as all these people from fancy universities, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And I said, well, I've had the best education you could have. Read my stuff. (laughs) I've been at the Washington Star under Sid Epstein, this great editor. I've covered all these stories. It's the best education. I know the streets and alleys of this city in the back of my hand. And he looked at me, the city editor, and he said, you know, I've read your clips. And you got the you're goods. right. You're right. That, that this is the best education you could have. And I got hired at the Washington Post. Could that happen today? I don't think so. Very unlikely. But the great thing is, if you can get your foot in the door. Yep. Anywhere. Anywhere. And that's one of the things, again, in this book. I grew up in this country at a time of the greatest meritocracy in the history of the earth, the United States. Mm -hmm. Coming from the GI Bill after World War II, extending probably through the 1980s, this remained the greatest meritocracy in the history of the world. Now, it's not. We really have a kind of plutocracy, which is another thing we ought to be covering much more than we do to get the best obtainable version of the truth. One aspect of that, though, Carl, that must be mentioned is that the newsrooms you worked in were predominantly white and male and therefore less able to have a diverse initial conversation about what a story was and why. And one of the things that I've noticed in my life in this business is that the people who are around the tables now making these decisions bring a far greater diversity of perspectives And that has a great deal to do with what is covered and how. Absolutely. And thank God for it. Uh, At the Star until 1962, 
we had no black reporters. We did have a good number of, of women who were great reporters. When the first day that I went to work at the Washington Star and the head copy boy showed me where people sat and said, you need to know about this person, you need to know about that one, three Pulitzer winners, all women. All women. Mary Lou Werner yep. that year had won the Pulitzer for her coverage of massive resistance desegregation in the South. Miriam Ottenberg, a great investigative reporter who I paid a lot of attention to and who helped teach me, had won the Pulitzer for covering used car rackets in, in Washington, D.C., and the great Mary McGrory, mm -hmm. probably the greatest writer in Washington for a newspaper uh, of the last 50, 60 years. She was at three women, as well as during World War II, a lot of women had gone onto the staff at the Star because the men went off to war. So we had a rewrite woman who was every bit as good, Harriet Griffiths, as the rewrite men uh, were. So there were a lot of women who, who were great reporters at the Star. But in terms of blacks, the Washington Post had been much, much uh, more advanced than the Star. By the time uh, I was at the Star, the Post had five black reporters. We had none when I went to work there. Carl, before we let you go, I need to ask you the three questions we ask every guest on this program. Uh, take them in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books in your life and why? All-time favorite movie? And if you're going to listen to some music and really indulge yourself, I mean, really, really enjoy it, long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay, um... I would say the book that, that I would choose would actually be something called The Sotweed Factor by John Barth, which was very influential in my life. And it is a fable based on the history of Maryland about uh, a guy who's the poet laureate of Maryland in this 18th century, appointed by Lord Baltimore. And it is hilarious. And it influenced me as well in my coverage of Maryland. And I had actually covered the real poet laureate of Maryland at the height of the Cold War, who came to my grammar school dressed in a cape and recited doggerel about the menace of the communists. So that, that really that comes to mind. Uh, and um, I'm sure I could think of others, but right now that That's comes a good to one. mind. That's a great one. That's a great uh, in one. terms of, of movies, I would say it, it's, a, it's a run between Citizen Kane which is pretty obvious, right. and, and His Girl Friday, which mm -hmm. is about, uh, Hildy. again, I about, love Hildy. Uh, about newspapering. And instead of the hero being a man as the original front page from which His Girl Friday is taken, the reporter is the great Rosalind Russell yep. uh, playing the reporter. And music, you're talking to a former rock critic uh, yes. for the Washington Post. <laughs> Uh, I would probably take the playing of my son, Max, who is a rock star. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I have one son, I'm happy to say, who's a reporter at the New York Times, a great reporter, my son, Jacob, who writes for the style section in the New York Times. Just did actually a great obituary on, on Andre Leon Tolley mm -hmm. on, on the front page of the Times. Uh, tremendous writer, reporter. And my other son, Max, is a guitar player for both Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. There you so go. 
that, that so uh, yeah, it, it would be rock and roll though. I listened to some classical music, but I was a rock critic. And, uh, but no, if I had to pick, you know, pick one, I would pick the birds nice. uh, in terms of their influence on so much music that came later. Mm-hmm. They're kind of seminal to, to rock and roll that comes afterwards, the introduction of country music. You look at the, the album Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And on my Instagram site, uh, while I've been publicizing the book, I've been putting up uh, a vinyl record every few days uh, that, that I'm, I'm listening to uh, and with the cover up there. So I, I put up Sweetheart of the Rodeo. I put up The Pretenders. I put up Bob Mould. Uh, not many people may have heard of Bob Mould. I put up Ian Hunter uh, and Mick Ronson. Uh, so Vinyl. you can see it all on, on my Instagram page. Vinyl. It's making a huge, huge comeback, and for all the right reasons. Carl Bernstein, it's been a great pleasure. The book, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. I'm Major Garrett. This has been your Takeout. I'll take a special. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.